0: Oh, Recorded live. Today I'm going to be talking with Steve Hinch, who wrote a book called Outdoor Navigation with GPS uh, several years ago, and I can't remember the exact date. I reviewed that book and several other books about how to use your GPS for the National Search Dog Alliance newsletter. And of the four books that I read, his was far and away the both the most complete and the most understandable and readable. And the reason I bought the book in the first place is I think anybody listening to this, um, even if you're an experienced GPS user or or if you're a beginner, you know that when you get started, there's a certain learning curve. And I bought the GPS and wasn't sure how to use it. First thing I did was sign up for a brief class that was taught by the Cornell Cooperative Extension, and that was not really helpful because it just kind of handed me a GPS with a single waypoint already programmed in. And after a little classroom lecture, a group of us used that to walk across the flat, open spaces of the New York State Fairgrounds to get to another building. And then the team that I belonged to at the time had a couple of other trainings that weren't much better. So I needed to figure out how to use the GPS on my own. And so after I read Steve's book, I knew that. It, He would be a perfect person to interview for the podcast. So, Steve, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. And thank you, Eva. Thank you for inviting me. I uh, am looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, A little bit about myself. So, first of all, I'm trained as an engineer. I have about 35 years of experience in the technical world, starting as an engineer for Hewlett-Packard, moving up through the engineering and management ranks, uh, eventually uh, got to the point where I managed a, about a $50 million a year business for a spin-off company from uh, from Hewlett Packard called Agilent Technologies. Uh, I retired from that in 2009, uh, but uh, didn't want to stay retired, so I opened my own business. Um, uh, in actually, it was in 2010 when I uh, got started uh, doing IT support work for um, companies throughout the the uh, North San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, I'm still in the technology world but I'm not traveling all over the world like I was for for many years and I enjoy being able to be close to home now. Now you might think that uh, being a, a technical geek isn't exactly the uh, uh, the pedigree that somebody that does a lot of outdoor hiking would uh, would be involved with and my experience in the outdoors really started when I was very young my uh, my family, my parents were um, avid rockhounds, which means that they, um, we lived in Southern California at the time, and pretty much every few weekends, we would head out into the desert in search of semi-precious stones of one kind or another, and uh, we did a lot of explorations, uh, they taught me a lot about how to stay safe, and and also gave me a lot of experience enjoying the outdoors, so uh, throughout my career, I've always tried to balance the, uh, the desk work that I do technically with continuing to be able to get outdoors. I not only have written the GPS book, but I've also written hiking guides for some of the state parks in the, the California region. And, and a good reason for, for why I write these books is it gives me an excuse to get outdoors, which I not necessarily would I otherwise have if I was just working behind the desk uh, so that's a bit about me. Um, I wrote the, the book, the first edition of the book, back in 2004. Um, we're now on the third edition, which came out in 2010. And it probably won't be too long before I need to look at uh, maybe doing a fourth edition. The the difference being, you know, how you use a GPS doesn't change, uh, but some of the uh, the particular models of GPS have improved since then, and that's probably the kind of thing I might look at. Uh, in doing a fourth edition. I'm not ready to do that yet, so um, it's probably still a couple of, of years down the, the pike before I do that.
0: Oh, thanks. And, you know, one thing I want to say about your book is, as you know, you can use a GPS without knowing a lot of the technical background of how the GPS system works, but your your um, book really explains that well. And I'm the kind of person that when I pick up a gadget, you know I may not know well you know i don't even I don't know how to fix my car, but I know how an internal combustion engine works in sort of a general way, so the same thing with the GPS it's really nice to be able to use um, your GPS receiver and understand some of the underpinnings so if we go back, when and why was the um, global positioning system developed sure
1: um, it Really goes back to the 1950s, early 1960s. It was developed um, for uh, military applications, primarily to begin with. And you might imagine that, you know, having your uh, uh, your armored troops being able to know exactly where they are and being able to coordinate uh, strikes between uh, land troops and air air troops um, would be important to the military. And and so. Uh, it's also important not only to the land and the air, but also to the Navy. And and back in the early 1960s, the Navy, the Army, the Air Force were all working on their own versions of uh, satellite-based navigation systems. They weren't called GPS at the time. And uh, they all worked somewhat differently, and they were not compatible with each other. Um, But government bureaucracy bureaucracy is, is being what it is. It wasn't until the early 1970s that... Uh, The Department of Defense decided that they wanted to coordinate all of that together into one um, uh, coordinated activity, and that was uh, a charter that was given to the Air Force to to lead the activity to to develop what was then called the NAVSTAR Global Positioning System. Originally, it was really developed with uh, the intent of being a military application and there were a lot of people in the military who were very concerned about the idea of letting that technology loose on the general public uh, because they were afraid that our enemies could get a hold of it and use it against us. So um, so originally it was not uh, always intended to be um, available to civilians, but uh, a very tragic event in 1983 Uh, really changed the whole scenario there. And that was uh, the flight of Korean Air Flight Number 007, which was a flight from uh, somewhere in the U.S. to uh, Seoul, and uh, it was uh, navigating close to the uh, Soviet border. Uh, They didn't have GPS at the time, and they'd made an error in navigation and actually flew over uh, Soviet land space and the Soviets, uh, for whatever reason, decided to shoot down this this 747 full of people. And um, uh, everybody aboard was killed. Uh, And as a result of that, uh, President Reagan declared that we couldn't let this happen again, uh, and he therefore made the global positioning system available not only to the military, but also to implement a civilian version and they are actually two different versions, uh, and the military can disable the civilian version in whatever part of the world that they are doing battle at the time so that uh, you know, it's a balance between giving the military what they need and giving civilians access to a uh, very high-precision nav- navigation system.
0: And if I'm correct, it uh, became available to civilians about 15 years ago. Is that correct?
1: Well, the year uh, two thousand is when it became uh, highly available. It was available even before then. You could buy GPS receivers, but the military made the civilian version not very accurate it was only accurate to about a three hundred foot um, uh, accuracy about the 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 uh, the distance of a football field and uh, it was in nineteen i 'm sorry in the year two thousand I think it was may first two thousand that President De- uh, Clinton declared that we would turn off this artificial degradation of the, uh, the civilian version of the system. And uh, from that day forward, it's become very, uh, very accurate. And it, and it was when that was turned off, it was a, a degradation called selective availability. When selective availability was turned off, that was what now made it possible for, for things like geocaching to become uh, practical, and it was just within a few days after it was turned off that the first geocache was planted, and, uh, and, and, you know, it's grown like a mushroom since then.
0: Yes, a a geocacher, I've I've heard that story. It didn't take long to take off. So one, you know, important part of the whole system, of course, is the satellites. How many satellites are there?
1: Well, the GPS system, and, and let me sort of clarify, there are now several different Systems similar to GPS, but let's talk specifically about GPS, which is the uh, the system uh, that is run by the uh, United States Air Force, and that has uh, a minimum requirement of twenty four satellites in order to be able to find your your position accurately anywhere in the world. Uh, there typically are uh, more satellites than that there have been as many as thirty satellites. Uh, that are launched, but they typically have a lifetime of between three and five years. So they la- launch new satellites to replace the old ones before the old ones actually are retired. I'm not sure how many satellites there are right at the moment, but I would predict that it's probably closer to 30 than 24.
0: Okay. And one of the things I learned from reading your book, it's, it's pretty amazing to think that this little thing I can hold in my hand is getting so many different kinds of information from the satellites out there and so can you explain what some of the types of data or information a GPS sure.
1: receiver so, receives? So maybe we'll start by explaining, you know, how does GPS work? How does it determine what your position is um, very accurately, you know, to within 20 or 30 feet or even less, um, and how does that work? Well, what happens is that the there are these 24 or more satellites that are broadcasting information about themselves uh, to your GPS receiver. And the way that your GPS receiver figures out where it is, is it is measuring the time that it takes for this broadcast signal from any particular satellite to go from the satellite to the GPS receiver. And by knowing very accurately, how long that takes, and by knowing very accurately where exactly that satellite is in the sky, um, by measuring that same information from multiple satellites, uh, your GPS receiver can calculate exactly where it is. So the kinds of signals that the GPS, uh, the satellites are sending fall into three categories. The first is this timing signal that allows the, your GPS receiver To tell how long it's taken for that signal to come from the satellite to the uh, GPS receiver. The second is information which is called almanac information, which tells the GPS receiver exactly where in the sky that receiver or that uh, satellite is. And the third piece of information then is uh, very precise orbital information. Uh, about the uh, the GPS uh, satellites, and it's the combination of the the almanac data and the precise uh, orbital data, which is what the GPS receiver uses to very accurately calculate where the satellite is in the sky. So it's those three sets of information that it needs, and uh, and it really needs all three of them in order to be able to determine your position.
0: Another question is. You know, the world has three dimensions, so you would think that you'd need the distance to three satellites. So why does my GPS receiver need to lock onto four satellites to get an accurate position?
1: Yeah, good question. Uh, And as I said, the way that the uh, GPS receiver determines where it is is by determining very accurately how long it has taken from when the satellite broadcasts the signal to when it was received. and you know, it knows the speed of light, and so if it knows how long it took, it can calculate how far away the satellite was. Well, the problem uh, is that the clock inside your GPS receiver is not very accurate. Now, there are very accurate clocks inside the satellites themselves, atomic clocks that are accurate to better than a nanosecond, a billionth of a second, but your GPS receiver does not have that accurate of a clock. If it did have an accurate clock like that, you would only need three three, uh, satellites. But since it doesn't have that accurate of a clock, it uses information from four satellites to make a time correction from what time it thinks it is to what time it really is. And it really needs that fourth satellite uh, to make that time correction and then get the accuracy that, uh, that you need. Now, receivers will still calculate a location even if they are only receiving three satellites but it won't be a very accurate location it could be off by more than a mile Mm
0: -hmm. and how come sometimes when i turn my gps receiver on i can find out where i'm located really fast and sometimes it it takes a really long time so what are some factors that go into how long it takes the gps to figure out where it is
1: if you remember that there are these three different signals that uh, you're receiving, there's what's called the almanac data, there's the very precise orbital data, and then there's the, the actual time measuring signal itself. All three of those types of signals have to be current in your GPS receiver, and they get out of out of date over a period of time. Your almanac data stays current for about six months, but your precision orbital data could be out of date within just – a few hours. And so if you've turned off your receiver and it hasn't been turned on for uh, for more than a few hours, then your receiver has to collect that precision almanac or that precision orbital data front that is being broadcast from the satellites, and that takes 2 or 3 minutes. And the signal can't be interrupted during those 2 or 3 minutes. Uh, so if you're driving in a car, for example, and it's trying to collect that orbital information and you go under a bridge, and that blocks the signal. But when you come out of the bridge, the acquisition has to start all over again. So um, it, uh, it, it can take you anywhere from three to 10 minutes uh, to, um, to collect that accurate orbital data depending upon just exactly how good of reception you have of the satellite. If you've been using your receiver recently and it's been less than a couple of hours since you last turned it on, you don't need that data because it's still current and you only need the uh, the time data, which uh, takes just a few seconds to get. So that's why you need, uh, you know, sometimes it will be very accurate very quickly and sometimes it takes a while.
0: Exactly how accurate is the
1: um, GPS receiver? Yeah, and that... Um, Unfortunately, there's no one single answer to that. If you look at the, uh, the government, if you look at what the Air Force says, they will give you an accuracy of plus or minus 50 feet, but that applies anywhere in the world and in the really worst case conditions. Um, most uh, GPS manufacturers will claim accuracies of typically 20 feet or less, and um, if you use a um a, 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 a GPS receiver that has an additional feature called WAS wide area availability um you can get accuracies down to just a few feet
0: okay. and one of the tasks that you know, we're going to talk later about some of the tasks one uses a GPS for but a GPS receiver for is to you know figure out where you're going and I know if I take out my compass, it points in the direction, you know, it points north. But when I am on the compass page of my GPS receiver, it kind of bounces all over the place unless I'm
1: moving. Why is that? Right. That's right. Um, And it depends on which GPS you have. Uh, Some GPSs include a separate built-in magnetic compass. And those are, that, that is a feature that is completely separate from uh, the GPS feature. If you have one of those, and those tend to be more expensive, then you'll get an accurate uh, compass direction even when you're standing still. But a typical GPS that does not include that, it only really effectively measures one thing, and that is your exact location. And if you are standing still, it knows what your location is. And... When you start moving, it can see how your location is changing, and then it can tell you what direction you're headed. But if you're standing still, it doesn't know what direction the the, uh, the GPS is pointed.
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, all this stuff sounds kind of overwhelming, but you simplified things in your book um, by boiling down the things you need to do with a GPS receiver into four basic tasks. And, Can you explain what those four basic tasks
1: are? Sure. Um, And and you made a really good point here because GPS receivers can seem really complicated. They've got lots of capabilities that most people will never use. And so the question is, you know, what are the few things that I really need to know? And as you said, there really are only four things that you need to know, and we're talking about people using the GPS for outdoor navigation now. Um, And the first one of those things that you need to know how to do is know how to store your current location in your GPS memory. So you're standing, let's say you're standing, you're about ready to go out for a hike and you want to store the location of where your car is parked so you can get back to it later. So you need to know how to enter that location into your GPS memory which is a, a process called marking a waypoint. and that's it's different with every gps receiver but it's it's pretty easy to do usually that's really the first thing that you need to know now the second thing you need to know is how to get back to that stored location from wherever you might be so you know you've stored the location of your car you've gone out hiking for the afternoon now you're ready to head back and so you need to uh, tell your gps receiver that you want to get back to that stored location uh, of the that you put into your your receiver And you do this by following a bearing. And the GPS receiver will tell you what bearing to follow in order to get back to your car. And you need to understand how to navigate by following a bearing, which is the second thing. The third thing is to know how to program into your receiver the coordinates of locations that you want to go to that you've never been to. So, you know, when we talked about storing the location of your car, you're standing right there. Um, You can just... Uh, record that location in your GPS receiver. But let's suppose that you want to hike to a waterfall that's that's uh, two miles away. Um, how do you enter that location? You've never been to that waterfall before. So how do you enter that into the receiver? You enter those coordinates into your receiver, typically either latitude and longitude coordinates, or some people use a coordinate system called UTM. Um, and you, So you need to know how to enter those coordinates into your uh, GPS receiver. And the final thing that you need to know, and this is probably not as important as the first three things, but it's still something I think is pretty important, which is let's suppose you've stored a number of waypoints into your GPS receiver because maybe you're hiking to the waterfall and then you're gonna go hike to a scenic view, and then maybe you're gonna hike to another point and then come back to your car. You need to know how to navigate from one stored waypoint to the next in succession until you get to your final destination. And that's a process called following a route. So if you can do those four things, store your current location, know how to get back to that location by following a bearing, know how to program coordinates for locations you want to get to into your GPS receiver, and know how to cor- uh, how to navigate from one sort of waypoint to another. If you can do all of that, that's really all you need to know for how to get around in the outdoors. And,
0: you know, one thing you mentioned um, when you were – explaining those things is following a bearing and when i go to the compass page of my gps it shows my bearing and it shows heading what's the difference between those
1: ah uh, yes good question um let's say that you want to go to that waterfall that we were talking about mm-hmm. the direction that you need to, to go in order to get to that waterfall is called your bearing. And it's going to be a straight line bearing. You know, if you're out in the outdoors, you're typically not going to be able to go on a straight line. But the GPS is going to tell you the straight line direction to that waterfall that you want to get to. Now, the direction that you're actually hiking is what's called your heading. Now, if you're hiking directly toward the uh, object in question, that waterfall, then your bearing and your heading will be exactly the same. If you're navigating around some sort of obstacle, then you're not going to be heading in exactly the direction you need to get to in order to get to that waterfall, and so your heading will be different than than your bearing. But the neat thing about GPS is it doesn't matter how much you have to circumvent uh, to get around obstacles like trees or mountains or lakes, whatever, the GPS will always tell you the direction that you need to head, the bearing, um, instantaneously, you know what direction you need to be getting to in order to uh, to get to that that uh, that waterfall
0: yeah because there are so many settings in the GPS receiver and when you're a new GPS user you might be overwhelmed and so you know yet you still have to figure out how to set some of the settings um in your GPS receiver so that not only can you do what you want to do but you can communicate with other people, whether it's somebody else on your search team, the search management, your training partners. So maybe we can talk about some of the settings like datum, units, um,
1: north, and the formats. Sure, sure. So let's start uh, with datum um, because that's one that uh, confuses a lot of people. What What is a datum? Why do you need it? Who cares? Why are there so many different choices? And this all comes about because let's let's use... Latitude and longitude is our coordinate system um, for this discussion, it doesn't really matter, they're all the same. But latitude and longitude is a coordinate system that everyone is, is fairly familiar with, I think. And latitude and longitude is designed for a perfect sphere. And if you think back to elementary school, you may remember that your teacher told you that the Earth is not a perfect sphere because of the fact that it's rotating on its axis there's a little bit of a bulge at the equator and the, uh, the poles, the North Pole and the South pole, pole, are a little bit compressed because of that. So when you fit this latitude-longitude coordinate system onto the Earth, it doesn't fit very well. If you've got it so that it fits exactly at the equator, what you will find is that the North Pole and the South Pole aren't actually on the surface of the Earth because the Earth is sort of squashed down. The North Pole and the South Pole in the coordinate system for GPS, or for uh, latitude and longitude, is actually at a space in the sky about six miles above the true North Pole. A little tricky to get to. A little tricky to get to. And so the reason you use a datum is to correct for those errors. And there are different datums. Some datums are designed only to correct for specific regions of the, uh, the Earth. So one of the two datums that's typically common in the United States is what's called NAD27. That's a datum that is very accurate for fitting latitude and longitude onto the surface of the Earth in the region of the United States. But it doesn't work well at all if you're in Europe or Asia. Um, another datum, that uh, is used for GPS is called the WGS84 datum, which is a good compromise for the whole world. It's maybe not as accurate as NAD27 for the US, but it can be applied throughout the whole world. And so those are the two datums that people typically use. Um, And the one that you need to use depends on what map you're using. A lot of the older uh, USGS maps used the NAD27 datum, newer maps oftentimes use the WGS84 datum. And unfortunately, uh, there's a fair amount of distance difference between the two. If you're using a map that is um, using the NAD27 datum, and you've programmed those same coordinates into your GPS receiver, but you've set it to the WGS84 datum, you could be off by 1,500 feet or more. So it's very important to select the correct datum uh, based on the coordinates that you were given. If the coordinates that you were given were referenced to NAD27, use that datum in your GPS. If they were referenced to WGS84, then use that datum in your GPS. So that's a bit about datums. There are many other datums throughout mm-hmm. the whole world, but those are the two that the people would typically use.
0: Yeah, because I um, live in New York State, and when I go geocaching, it's WGS84. But a lot of the times when we're doing a search, the they're run by the rangers, and they'll often they'll often use NAD27. So I had to learn pretty fast how to
1: yeah. change the datum yeah, yeah, in my
0: GPS and, receiver. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> was, and the
1: key thing you need need to remember there is you need to change the datum to the correct one before you put the coordinates in. You can't put the coordinates in <laughs> exactly. and say, well, I put the wrong, wrong data. You've got to go back and reenter the data if you did that.
0: That's a good, good point. And then um, another thing that probably a little easier to understand is setting the units in your GPS receiver.
1: Yeah, and um, so tell me for your you know search and rescue, do you typically use uh, uh, latitude and longitude coordinates or do you use UTM coordinates?
0: Well... Um, Some some of each, and, you know, I'm trying to use the UTMs more when I'm training, Um, and when we talk about UTMs later, you'll be able to explain why that's pretty useful when you're on the ground.
1: (laughs) And, and, you know, I've taught a a number of of, uh, classes uh, that uh, have had search and rescue team members in them, and they all sort of have the same um, concerns, you know, they talk about when they're coordinating searches across different agencies. Well, some agencies use some coordinate systems and some other use others, and and there seems to be no standardization. So it really is important to understand units. And let's talk about latitude and longitude. That tends to still be the most common uh, coordinate system. But even within latitude and longitude, there are uh, three different formats. And maybe what, what I'll do here is I'll use an analogy. Uh, because Latitude and longitude is very similar to how you look at time. So let's suppose you're looking at your clock and it's 2:30, 2:30, uh, and let's just say 2:30 p.m. And um, there are a couple of ways you could express that. You could express that as two, two hours and 30 minutes, or you, 30 minutes is half of an hour, right? Or you, so you could also express it as 2.5 hours. So the difference between those two is in one case, you're talking about hours and minutes, two hours, 30 minutes. In the other case, you're talking about what, what we call decimal hours, 2.5 hours. They refer to the same time, but it's two different uh, expressions for, for how to say that. Now with latitude and longitude, as with time, there's even one more um, element here, which is how you express seconds. So uh, you could say that it's two hours and 30 minutes, and 30 seconds. Or you could say it's two hours, 30.5 minutes, because 30 seconds is .5 of a minute. And so it, it can seem complicated, but if you think about it in terms of, you know, it's very similar to how do you express time. You can express time in either hours and minutes, or hours and fractions of an hour, or decimal hours, uh, and the same way with you can express um, coordinates in terms of uh, degrees, minutes, seconds, or degrees, minutes, and decimal minutes, or degrees and decimal degrees, they're really just three different ways to express the same location. And as long as you know, you know, if you were given GPS coordinates for like uh, geocaching, for example, as long as you know the format that those were given to you in, you set your GPS receiver to that format before you enter the data then you'll be just fine.
0: And another thing you didn't mention, but if I'm, let's say, entering the coordinates for geocaching and somebody says to me, well, I want those in the UTM format, my GPS receiver can convert that.
1: That's correct. If you have the GPS coordinates in any format and you've entered them into your GPS receiver, you can go to the, uh, typically it's in the settings screen, where you can change the units and it will give you, let's say you put them in as, as uh, degrees, minutes, seconds, uh, and you convert over to UTM, it will immediately give you exactly what those same coordinates are in the UTM system and any other coordinate system that's, that's um, stored in your GPS receiver, you can convert to any of those automatically and it's that's a very handy capability because you don't have to do mental math uh, to calculate um, and, and, you know, if somebody gives you coordinates in the UTM system, you set your, your, um, receiver to enter the, the coordinates in UTM, put them in, and then you can later change it to degrees, minutes, and seconds, and it will give you that same location in the degrees, minutes, second format. Very, very, uh-huh. very handy. Yeah.
0: So how does that UTM system work?
1: So the UTM system was designed, um, it's, it's, It's designed based on a military coordinate system, and it it was really important when people were doing all of their measurements off of uh, paper maps, because with a paper map, it's pretty hard to measure the exact uh, degrees, minutes, seconds uh, on any particular location on the map. You need a special uh, uh, ruler in order to measure that, and it's, it's really complicated. My book actually talks about how to measure uh, 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 GP, uh, GPS system or GPS coordinates uh, using a special ruler, uh, but, but it's really hard. And so the UTM system makes everything linear in both north-south direction and east-west direction. And so with a, a very simple... Uh, it's, it's, it's called a UTM um, ruler, that you can measure anything on a paper map very easily. And so if you, you say that there's a particular location on this paper map that you want to go to and you want to enter those coordinates into uh, your GPS receiver using this thing, and it's called a UTM roamer, that you, uh, you can use actually on the map and measure very precisely what those coordinates are. They look really weird they the The numbers are just sort of long digits uh, for north, south and east west. but if you understand how to use it, it's very easy to program it into the uh, the GPS Now, with the coming of software maps, my opinion is that UTM is maybe not as important as it used to be, um, but for anybody doing uh, navigation um, Using paper maps, it's it's still really important. With software maps, you can read the exact latitude and longitude of any any position very easily. You don't need to use, use to use UTM, but but uh, you know outdoor people should outdoor hikers should understand the UTM system.
0: And I think it's really nice if you you know in your book it's the kind of thing you need a few pictures to explain how it works, and and your book does that really well, and also. Didn't mention, but the other kind of units for distance a nice thing with your g p s receivers you can set it between if you want your distance in miles or I visited my daughter in Australia last year, and I could convert everything to meters because that's the way they measure everything over there
1: right it's, yes that's right you can uh, can co- co- change to all sorts of coordinate systems i
0: and what about um setting the north on your GPS.
1: Do you have to yeah, worry about so, declination? Or? So there are two two types of north that uh, you need to be aware of. One is called magnetic north, and that's where your compass points to. And the other is um, true north, which is where the north pole is. And unfortunately, the magnetic north is not exactly at where the north pole is, so there will be some difference between True North and Magnetic North, for for most locations um, in the U.S. particularly, there's a sort of uh, through Minnesota down through about uh, Arkansas uh, is a line where the two are almost exactly the same. But, uh, you know, elsewhere here in, in California, there's probably about a 15-degree difference between True North and Magnetic North. And why that's important is because when you are measuring a bearing from a paper map and then deciding that you want to follow that bearing on your GPS receiver, you need to make sure if you're measuring that, that bearing on your paper map based on magnetic north, you wanna make sure your GPS receiver is, is set to magnetic north. If you're measuring that bearing based on true north, which is typically what you would do on a paper map, then you want the, uh, the GPS receiver to set to true north. Now one of the, the nice things about the GPS receiver is that you can actually set it to automatically correct for magnetic north. And and uh, so you don't have to worry about, well, what's the declination in my particular area? Um, you just set it to automatically correct for it. And it will give you uh, automatically corrected bearing for true north or magnetic north, depending upon what you want.
0: Okay. And what about maps? Now, I, I own a Garmin, and their topo maps are, are great, but they're expensive. So... How about if I wanted to say visit um, my son who lives in another state, and I just need a little—I don't even—I don't need the whole state. I just need a map, maybe, of the area um, that I'm going to go hiking.
1: Yeah, so that's one area where most GPS manufacturers uh, do tend to make their money because um, you need to buy their maps in order to, uh, to really be able to put maps into. The GPS receivers. Now, that's not completely true, however, and I'll, I'll cover that in just a minute. Um, uh, one of the manufacturers, Delorma, is pretty neat. Is when you buy a Delorma receiver, it comes with their Topo USA uh, topographic maps, and uh, you can automatically load uh, any of those into your GPS receiver without having to worry about, uh, you know, do I have to spend another hundred dollars on another state map? Now, with Garmin, you have actually a couple of choices, and one is to buy the Garmin maps, which can become fairly expensive. But Garmin has also uh, added a feature that all of their newer receivers um, can take advantage of, which is uh, something called Garmin Custom Maps. And you can go to the Garmin website and search on Garmin Custom Maps and, and learn more about this. But what this allows you to do is to take any paper map that you have scan it or take a photo of it as a JPEG data file. You then import that file into Google Earth and align it and and it's pretty easy to do and I talk about this in my book as to how to do this is align that map that you scanned into Google Earth and then export that map from Google Earth into your Garmin receiver and you now have a uh electronic version of that paper map that is in your your Garmin receiver. Um uh, and so if you're you know you're going to go someplace that you don't want to buy uh the whole map for and if you can get a hold of a paper map and scan it in uh that's a different way to take advantage of the ability of your Garmin receiver to to hold a map. Now I do have to say that a lot of the paper maps that you get aren't very accurate. And so, you know, like here in, the U- in California, um, the California State Parks have state park maps for pretty much every state park um, that that you could go to. Well, if you scan those state park maps, and unfortunately, the a lot of the trail locations shown on the the state park maps aren't really where the trails are. So when you put that into your GPS receiver, um, you have to be aware of the fact that there will be some error uh, compared to what when you're hiking, compared to what the uh, the map shows in the GPS receiver.
0: How about choosing a GPS receiver? Do you have any tips on that?
1: Uh, yeah. So there are a variety of of um, uh, you know features that the GPS receivers have that that you need to decide whether they're important to you or not. Let's talk about specifically people that are going to be hiking in the outdoors, geocaching, uh, hiking, hunting, fishing, whatever. Um, You really don't need a really complicated high-end receiver, uh, but it doesn't hurt to have one. The high-end receivers will have not only the GPS capability, they will also have the magnetic compass, which is a separate feature, and they will have a barometric altimeter, which some people find useful and interesting. But even the least expensive GPS receivers will be able to get you where you want to go and get you back safely. Um, now there are only a few major manufacturers of GPS receivers these days for for outdoor use. Garmin is, is by far probably the the uh, the largest manufacturer. Delorma is another one, and Magellan um, is sort of at this these days a distant third. Um, any of the Garmin uh, family of products that are designed for outdoor use, there's the Oregons, the Dakotas, the GPS-62s, uh, any of those, and even the least expensive versions of those would be uh, fine for the, the kind of use that, that uh, we're talking about here. The DeLorma's all as well. Um, The thing that you want to be careful about is, I hear some people say, well, why do I need to buy something like that? I've got GPS on my cell phone. And the problem with GPS on your cell phone is it's not really designed for heavy duty outdoor use. There's a, a few things about your cell phones that are limitations. One is the battery life isn't very long. Two is the GPS receivers in your cell phones are not very sensitive. And when you get out in the outdoors and you're in maybe a heavily tree-covered area, uh, it's not going to be able to, to, to do a very good job of finding your location. And with a lot of the cell phones, um, it really only works well if it's within range of a cell phone base station. And I go in, in my book as to some of the reasons for that. I won't go into that now. But, but I really strongly advise you not to just use your cell phone for any serious outdoor navigation. Now, it's fine for you know geocaching in a local park, something like that, but if you're out hiking in the outdoors, you're going to be gone overnight. Uh, even, even for an afternoon, you're going to be hiking several miles. Uh, I would strongly encourage you to consider investing in a true outdoor-based GPS.
0: So a, a car GPS isn't going to do it for wilderness navigation.
1: A car GPS really isn't going to do it. Uh, it. It doesn't have the ability to set the different kind of datums, the coordinate systems. Um, it's auto, auto GPS is really our designed just for navigating in autos.
0: And do you have any tips of some advanced skills? When we talked before recording this interview, I mentioned that one of my favorites is being able to project a waypoint because then I can figure out, um, you know, I have a search dog, so I can figure out where I might want my subject to hide and give them the coordinates or I can select the spot that I want to navigate to. And you mentioned um, that you have some tips for using a GPS when it's low-light conditions.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about the projecting a waypoint first because that's a a neat feature that Garmin makes really easy to do. They actually have an ability to project a waypoint. And um, I have used the projected waypoint feature in the past when I've hidden geocaches to make it a little more complicated to find it. Because it's easy enough to find a geocache when you say, here are the coordinates for the the, the geocache. You know, you program those in and you get pretty close and you look around and find it.
0: Except when they hide it in a tower, of course, because you're not. (laughs) (laughs) I found some of those. That's true. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But
1: to, to make it a little more complicated, what I have done is say, go to this coordinate, and then you have to project that, that that coordinates you go to is not where the the, the, the uh, geocache is. You have to go to a location that is 50 feet away at a bearing of 320 degrees. And so um, that's something that um, if you know how to project a waypoint in in your receiver, which again Garmin makes it easy because you can go from a particular waypoint. And there's a button called Project a Waypoint, and you can enter how far away that waypoint is and what bearing it is. Um, and, uh, and, and so projecting a waypoint can be really fun to, to make you know, hiding things, geocaching, a little more complicated uh, and a little bit more fun. Now, um, low-light conditions or um, white-out conditions or in the dark, um, I was interviewed by Backpacker magazine a couple of years ago, and that was something that they were really interested in in knowing how to, um, to to tell their readers how to, to do this. And the, the first thing that I cautioned then, and I will caution now, is you really don't want to be navigating in the outdoors in low light conditions uh, if you can possibly avoid it, because uh, you know it's, you don't know where you're gonna be walking, you're gonna fall into a pothole, or you're gonna be tripping over things. But there may be some times where you know, there's a whiteout, you're on the side of a mountain, you gotta get down as soon as you can, and um, and so uh, the, the thing that you want to do then in those kind of cases, if you think you're going to be caught in that kind of situation, the best thing to do is to plan ahead. And by planning ahead, I mean put that map into your GPS ahead of time from Garmin or the one that you scanned that has the trail location really accurately mapped out in it so that you can um, – be As you're, you're hiking along, you're looking at your GPS receiver while you are also being careful not to step in a pothole, and you can be looking on your screen to follow what that trail looks like. Now, I, I said you know be prepared and scan ahead of time. There may be times when you didn't do that, and then, then you can use what's called the trackback feature of your GPS, which allows you to follow the exact path that you came out on and return on that exact path as well. And as long as you left your GPS on while you were hiking out, it will have recorded your path and you can then follow that using the trackback function. And so even though you may not be able to see very far ahead of you, uh, that that is a way to be able to navigate back to where you want to go.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you're using your GPS, sometimes you want to get um, either the waypoints you've marked or Someplace you want to go from your computer to your GPS receiver and vice versa. Any tips for that or for um, comm- sending your information to somebody else so they can put the information
1: in their GPS yeah, and so um, first of all, you know the the software maps that I sort of alluded to earlier, there are a number of different companies. Uh, there used to be a really good one called uh, National Geographic Topo, which unfortunately is no longer available. Uh, but there are uh, similar kinds of capabilities from companies called MapTech and also Topographic. Uh, they have a, a, a software called Easy GPS, which allows you to very easily transfer uh, GPS coordinates from your computer into your GPS receiver uh, because, and I'm sure you know this as well if you've done this many times, is entering GPS coordinates directly into your GPS receiver is really time consuming and prone to error. What's a lot easier if you, if you can just enter those coordinates into your computer using a software program and then have that software program transfer them into uh, your GPS receiver. Um, so uh, this Easy GPS, uh, which you can download from, I think it's www.easygps.com is, is one way to do that. Garmin has, uh, you know, their maps, and they have a capability called Basecamp, I believe. Uh, and I think one of the things about Basecamp is that it works not only with uh, Windows receive- or Windows computers, but also with Macs. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a lot of experience with, with that, but uh, the people that I have talked to before say that it works pretty well.
0: Yeah, I have a, so Mac, a, and and I have a Mac, and it does seem to work pretty well. Okay, okay. So- and what about, you know, it's GPS is really amazing. So what about a map and compass? Do you still need those? Because could anything possibly go wrong?
1: <laughs> yeah. No, not at all. It's not <laughs> likely that your batteries are ever going to run out. It's not <laughs> likely that you're going to actually accidentally drop it and break it. Um, but if you do and you're five miles from nowhere and you don't know where your car is, um, It's really good to have map and compass navigation skills. So I really encourage strongly, and I make this point again and again in my book, that if you're going to be doing any serious outdoor navigation, you really need to not only know how to use a map and compass, but you need to take that map and compass along with you so that if something does happen to your GPS receiver, you're not stuck. Um, You can use the you know, the 20th century version of GPS, which is the old map and compass version, to get yourself back. And, um, you know, one of the things that I really encourage people to do is, is to not just depend on the GPS at all, uh, but, you know, occasionally pull out that map and compass and get your bearings on the map compared to what the GPS says so that if you do get stuck, you already sort of have an idea of where you are on that map and have a good idea of how to get back. And of
0: course, it kind of goes without saying, it it should be a real compass, not one on your cell phone. Um, I went out in the woods the other day with a a friend who is not really a woods person yet. And um, after she hid for my dog, we decided to just wander around and explore the woods where we were. And I said, gee, do you know how to use a compass? I'll show you how to navigate back to the car with a a compass and she goes, "Yeah, I just I just got a compass." And she pulled out her cell phone and had a new compass app on there. So, of course, <laughs> I pulled out my compass and and showed her how to do that. And we talked about geocaching and in fact, I think I'm going to do a future podcast about geocaching. I don't know if you know um if you've ever listened to the Podcaster podcast, but the um folks who do that have agreed to an interview. But what are some other fun things you can do with a GPS?
1: Yeah, that's great. Um, before we leave the subject of compasses, I, I think I, I want to make one more point here, and this is a point that I make in my book, which is what I call the cardinal rule of navigation. And, and maybe I'll sort of uh, frame this because when I was a kid, I m- remember I mentioned the, our my uh, my family were were avid um, rock hounds, and we get out and my mother would give me a compass and, and, and uh, she'd show me how to find North with it. And, and that was all I knew how to do with it. Okay. But, but, and here's where the cardinal rule of, of navigation comes in, which is it doesn't help to know what direction North is if you don't know what direction you want to go. And so that's, that's really something, in order to n- know how to do map and compass navigation, you don't, not only need to know how to find north, but you also need to know how to find what direction you want to go and what bearing that is in relation to north. And, um, and so, you know, there's more to map and compass navigation than just having a map and a compass in your pocket. You really need to know how to use them. So anyway, you had asked about uh, you know what are some of the other fun things that you can do with your GPS, and we've talked a bit about geocaching. I really like geocaching because that is a great way to pretty much learn everything you need to know about how to navigate in the outdoors. If you're able to find a hidden geocache using your GPS receiver, you already are going to know how to do the things that I said are important. You're going to know how to mark a waypoint. You're going to know how to follow a bearing. You're going to to know how to go from one place to another. you're going to know how to get back to your your uh, your car from from where that geocache is. And so I can't overemphasize how important geocaching is as a way to learn how to use your GPS receiver. so So that's one thing. but there are many other things that you can do um, as games in in my book, I talk about a number of different games that that you can invent, um, uh, and um, I, one of them is, for example, a GPS relay race where um, you you station, let's say, four different people uh, at four different locations, and the first person, the only thing he has, is the coordinates of where that second person is. The second person, the only coordinates he or she has, is where the third person is, and and so on, and so, the first person has got to enter the coordinates into their GPS receiver, and they've got to go navigate to be able to find that second, GP, that second person. The second person then, um, once the first person finds them, has then got to go navigate to where the third person is and so on. And you can actually make a really race out of that and have different teams navigating uh, different paths or maybe one's navigating the same path but in reverse from the other person. And so um, that's the kind of thing, for example, that, that Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts uh, have been known to do because it's, uh, it's a good team kind of a game that's uh, 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 that more than just geocaching. And, and like I say, there are a number of other games that I've talked about in my book, but that's just an example of one thing that uh, it could be a neat team game.
0: Okay. Well, thanks. It's been great talking to you, and I'm sure that after listening to this podcast, I hope that some of the listeners will want to read your book because, you know, we've been talking for almost an hour now, and we've just um, uncovered the surface of what's in the book.
1: Well, I hope I've made it sound interesting to people to learn how to use a GPS receiver and and, uh, use it not only as a way to find your way around in the outdoors, but also as a way to have some fun out there that's what we really would are out there in the outdoors to do right it's 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 not supposed to be work to be out there it's supposed to be fun
0: all right thanks I'm gonna hit the end of the recording now and you'll hear that recording and then we